start with the end in mind. Those words come to us from Stephen Covey, but is an element that's underscored in this podcast with our guest, Laura Lee Putzback. Laura Lee reached out to me a few months ago. And when she did, she asked quite simply, how can I help you? How can I support your Center for Independent Living and the people that it serves? I have 30 years of experience in the human services arena, predominantly with people with disabilities. I'm a trained Americans with Disabilities Act coordinator. I am somebody that trains people on how to handle their service animals. I sit on about five boards, including the United Way, NAMI, which is the National Alliance for Mental Illness, and other boards in positions where she's serving on the executive board as vice presidents and treasurers and doing so many incredible things, coming to our center to ask, how can I serve? This, to me, is an example of something that is so important in what we are trying to do, to collaborate, to come together, to synergize, to be bigger than the sum of our parts. Laura Lee is a true example and a person who I think really has a lot to teach us, not just about the technicalities of the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, the laws that surround service animals, which we get into on this podcast, but also asking the real important questions of life. Who are we? What is my purpose? How can I contribute to make this world a better place? Laura Lee offers not only some of the insights on how to do this, but actual the tactical strategies on how to execute in doing this. Not just admiring the problem, but actually putting into action the strategies needed to solve the problem. So enjoy this podcast with Laura Lee. I hope you get as much out of it as I do and really gain the insights necessary to be the better versions of ourselves that we can be in order for the world to be a better place. Welcome back to another edition of the Independent Life Podcast. I am very excited about this episode because it really goes to the heart of a centerpiece, which is very important for Centers for Independent Living, to promote independent living in communities of people who have disabilities. And that is, uh, you know, partnerships, collaborations, interagency partnerships and collaborations and people that can be uh, come together and pool their resources, ideas and uh, experiences into efforts that really achieve mutual outcomes but might have different skill sets to bring to bear to do so and to synergize that it takes a lot of work and effort and today's guest uh, Laura Lee really represents that Laura you you reached out to me um, not too long ago so uh, you know you're you're probably the guest that I have a you know uh, just recently met the uh, that I have the least amount of experience with but in that short time it seems like 
uh, a lot has happened. Um, you came to me uh, through a phone call and uh, wanting to get engaged and, and, and see where you can be put in service to help out and support us uh, in our mission. And I, I was really taken back because usually when people are reaching out to us, it's usually because they want something. And that's what that is great because we want to serve. And so uh, we love it when people are reaching out, and, you know, asking for you know, our needs and, and serving. But you really came to us and, and as some do, but um, saying, what can I do to help you? And I thought that was really, really awesome and refreshing of you uh, to reach out and uh, you know put your all your you know thirty years of experience in the human service area with disabilities you know as a certified uh, Americans with Disability coordinator all your experience that you have on the different boards that you serve on you've you've told me that you're retired but you know in looking at everything that you're doing since retirement it's just amazing you're one of the busiest retired people I know so. Thank you so much for taking your time out of your busy schedule to come here and connect with us and, and talk about all the wisdom that you have to offer. Well, the Center of Independent Living does important work in our community, and I am so glad to partner with you and your openness to work together. So tell me, what, what really got you into disability? You know, why disability? Why is that something that has been such a focus uh, for you in your life? Um, I think for me, it's two reasons, Um, but the primary one is a college sophomore freshman year. I had a car accident, was not able to go back to school, and my experience with the vocational rehabilitation counselor went something like, the best you can hope for is to work part-time at McDonald's, and that's a stretch. Um, So for me, I felt I could choose my path. And I had to create my path. And I actually, my first job was after taking the book of services that Voc Rehab provided, picking I went on the job training, I went out, found the job and convinced the employer to hire me. And then I went back and told Voc Rehab I had found my job and they just need to pay them to train me. What? You totally reversed the system. Yes. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. See, you're a disruptor by nature. So, okay, so you got in, you know, through seeking employment, disability was important to you uh, because you saw some barriers there to getting the employment that you wanted. You took matters into your own hands. Sounds like you probably uh, advocated for yourself. You must have learned something about the system along the way. So tell me about, you know, those experiences that really have then led to your further endeavors into disability. I think the most important thing is we always think that service is something that you do to somebody. And yet it's an interactive process. And so my second job experience was in psychosocial rehabilitation uh, for individuals with mental illness. And there they created the first community that I experienced of people with disabilities. And their story, they started on the steps in New York and they're all over the world now. And their concept is pretty simple, wanted, needed, and accepted that no matter where you are with your disability, there's a place and you need to belong and you need to be accepted. And that began a change in how I looked at the service that I did. So it began by helping change the people who provided the service attitudes, not those with disabilities. The can do, not limit people, find out what they can do find out what their dreams are, and maybe that dream isn't possible, but what in that area could we make happen? 
So is that where you're talking about, um, I really like your point about services isn't something that we do to people, but rather it's an interaction. Is that the kind of what you're uh, pointing towards when you talk about that exchange between people? Yes, it, it really is. When we think of the word community and we think of the word service, it's, oh, somebody's down on their lot. The population is underserved. What we're really creating is an interaction where everybody benefits so it's a win-win situation, whether it's increasing income or having a better neighbor. Those opportunities make the community in which we operate stronger. So what is then one of the things that you think is needed to promote more interaction uh, with you know, agencies that maybe serve people with disabilities versus the services that are just done to them? Is that something that's like at a systemic level or is that something that more at an uh, you know, organizational slash interpersonal type level that needs to really make, you know, make sure that we're doing those interactions? Because I, I feel like some of the experiences that I've, I've had do seem a little bit cookie cutter and rigid. There's processes in place that, you know, have some rigidity and not as much flexibility and fluidity to make things so individualized and tailored. I think it's a combination of things. The first is the culture of the organization. I can be an organization that promotes people with disabilities, but the choices I make as an organization to get my funding may limit how I do my work. So it's making sure from the business economic reality that we're building in our cultural beliefs of including people. And the example I will give when I worked in the community mental health field, managed care required consumers now to be participants in writing in their records. To the doctors and nurses, this was not okay. And how could they possibly do it? These people that we were giving medication to over chronic and in the hospital. I facilitated a project team that was comprised of half consumers who had been in the state hospital with diagnoses such as schizophrenia. They were better participants and had more input on how to document their progress, how to gauge their progress than the professionals. Sometimes we have to let go of perceptions of I'm an expert and say, can we be shared experts in coming up with the best system and the best plan of action? I love that. And it really goes to the spirit of uh, independent living where uh, it's very consumer driven, consumer oriented, consumer centered. And that does seem to be even where the health and medical field has been pushing for the last decades to be more patient-centered, even seeing it coming out of the VA being more veteran-centered, where I think in the past, the you know, traditional way was it's more system-centered, like conform to the system that we have here in place. You know, that's a kind of one-size-fits-all methodology of addressing needs to where it is more centered in alignment with those kind of things. So, you know, I know that you have some, you know, understanding of what independent living is and would want to get your take on why do you think independent living is important for people with disabilities and the community? Well, I think it's so important because when we work together, the disabled community becomes one with their larger community. And what I mean by that is whether it's family network, friend network, a service agency, a neighborhood, a legislative body, we then can develop shared expectations. That's the key. You can be wanted, needed, and accepted, but if no one has common expectations of what life should look like, 
we're not making any progress. And it's been 30 years since the creation of the ADA, and there is still much work to do because we have a structure, but we haven't come together as a community to agree to execute the expectations. What do you think the barriers are to that actually happening and executing on it? Well, I, right now, our biggest threat is we're 30 years into this. And as a community of individuals with disabilities, we haven't done the best job of helping people pick up the torch to carry on the work. My friend, Christine, who was one of the original individuals in the US, and I had that conversation recently, is who's gonna carry on this work? Who's prepared? Have we done the job to pass the torch? And so when I think of that, I think in general, people may look to like the youth, they're our future, you know, and youth leadership and development and those kind of things. How do you see that as far as the next generation, you know, carrying the torch and all those other kind of things? Are they in a position from your, you know, kind of vantage point uh, to carry that torch? Or are there some things that really need to happen, some dominoes that need to fall in order to facilitate that passing of the torch and and carrying it on and keeping it lit? I think it comes down to the Center for Independent Living is a great climate for personal empowerment because it's individuals and they don't have to be young to carry on the work. You know, I can remember in my 30 years being a poster child and saying, I don't want to do this anymore. There's got to be someone other than me. And so if we cultivate individuals' abilities to express their own needs with their family, with their friends, with their providers, they are becoming self-advocates. If that's all they ever do, they've started the lighting of the torch. They're carrying that message on. If they become someone who supports someone else trying to meet their needs, they're doing peer support. That's a role for someone to take on. What about someone who says, hey, I want to do a little bit more, educate others about my major life impairment. That might be working with the Center for the Blind and talking specific about a disability or serving on a council like this Transportation Disadvantage Board to give perspective about living with a disability. And then of course, the big word advocating where you advocate beside someone or on behalf of others for a specific outcome, whether it's a legislative change or resolving a grievance. So there's many ways to take on the torch, and I don't think we've done a good job preparing people that you don't have to do it all. You just have to decide where you fit in. So how do people decide where to fit in? Like, where would that niche be? One of the more common questions I get asked is, um, you know, people with disabilities, you know, uh, that seem to have this nature of wanting to advocate, you know, let people know more what it's like to live the life, you know, within them, but often are like still kind of looking for that purpose and how to find that purpose and what is that niche for me? Do you have advice for people that have that spark perhaps, but haven't found quite exactly where that lane is? What would you advise people like that that are kind of in that seeking uh, space? My personal advice is you first have to be comfortable with yourself and where you're Are you accepting of yourself? Are you able to explain out a lot of disclosure, but can explain enough so that you can have a dialogue externally with someone else outside your network? Because you start with what you're comfortable with. You can set up a plan of, you know, I'm not good at explaining what my disability is. And so it's going to be hard for me to go and advocate legislatively when I can't explain it myself. So it's setting up some goals of where am I through self-assessment? 
And then what do I need to add? I'm not a great public speaker or I'm a really good public speaker, but I'm not a good letter writer. So what are the tools I'm gonna need to be doing this work? And, and then is there someone who will mentor me? Someone that I can talk about that has been out there, been on a council. You know, people sometimes get scared to do those things. And my advice has always been, your job is not to be the expert. Your job is to be able to ask the question of those systems so that you can get to the answers. I love what you're putting out there in terms of really identifying the areas in which people might be interested in doing, but having to explain themselves and who they are. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty deep thing that for me, when I hear that, it was like, who am I? You know, and when we talk about disability, it's part of our identity. And, you know, so that's in play. But, you know, there's so many aspects of who we are and that evolves over time. And what's our role? What's our fit in the community and in the, in the world at large? And for me, that's always like a, an ongoing reflection to have. And so I think that's very powerful. Another one that you're really throwing out there, I think that's really important for, for us to take stock of is, you know, what are the skills that are needed? to do what I, I'm finding to be who I am and, and that aligns with it that I, I might need, whether, like you said, is it public speaking? Is it writing? You know, is it learning more about something, being a beginner, you know, at something and developing the skills? And, and for me, that requires almost a, like a growth mindset, you know, to be able to do something like that. And, uh, to be, and that's very powerful. Uh, to have in terms of where we want to go. So one of the things I think that like I find very inspiring about you is you seem to probably perhaps be somebody that other people can look to or, uh, as a mentor. Uh, I mean, how many boards are you currently sitting on right now? I'm sitting on three. And here's what I'll say. I will commit to five years with an organization because... Wow. And, and the, that's my maximum commitment. And the reason is an organization, you need to build the bench. You need to be able to not, through your influence, make that organization. It needs to be breathing and living. And by bringing in other people and other ideas, you have a strong organization. So, and along with that, you know, building a strong organization and mentorship, what mentors have helped you along the way that has been helpful and how have they helped you to get to where you're going? Like I said, like you're now got 30 years of experience providing services to people in multiple areas and fields. Like you're talking about mental health. You do a lot with the ADA service dogs. Um, you're sitting on multiple boards currently have been on multiple boards previously. So what kind of mentorship did you find helpful to you and how did they provide that to you to, to help you propel you where you are and have done? Um, that's a great question. One I haven't reflected on in a long time, but I would say my first mentor was a, an old boss because I am so self-critical. And so learning to be kinder to myself and not, and not doubt myself because I was already doing many of the things at a different level that I'm doing now, but I was afraid, unsure. And so forcing me to be kinder to myself and being more realistic in my assessment, because sometimes it's not that I, I'm not doing a good job. It's that I think I'm not doing a good job. And so find, finding that mentor that can be a good feedback loop for you to make sure you're on track. That's important. The second was a board member on the United Way board. That's the publisher of our paper. And he has a nickname for me. He calls me Tenacious in a loving way, by the way. What's the name of your paper, by the way? I don't mean to interrupt. I'm the, it's the local community paper here. So I'm not going to rat him out. But he, oh, he's, okay. gotcha. he's been the publisher here for 
for a long time. And so, you know, what he likes about me is that I will look at something when it is said, no, it can't be done. Instead of saying, okay, I'm moving on. I say, what can we do? And, and so he and I have had that relationship and I'll say, I don't know, Jerry, here's what I'm thinking. And he will say, that sounds good. And here are some places you might want to think about going to validate that. So having someone that can take and listen to your ideas and then help connect you, encourage you is really important. And so when people uh, are looking for a mentor, you know, for me, and, and, and I would imagine in these experiences, it wasn't like that you officially went to them and had a ceremony asking them to be a mentor and then they dubbed you, you know, tapped you on the shoulder and now you're my mentee, right? So if someone wants to like seek mentorship, is it more of an informal process? And, and, and if so, how do people go about like finding mentors? Well, I, I think it can be formal or infor informal. And I have a legislative mentor, and that really is about legislative process and how I get things done and and that kind of thing. But the ones that have been the most valuable aren't the technical mentors, but they're the places where I have developed a relationship that I can truly let down my guard and good or bad, say what I need to say and get that feedback loop. That's great. I've heard of that as a court of counsel. Like people have a, they build their own courts of counsel. You know, that might, people might on that court uh, of counsels that they have could be two, three, four people that may or may not know each other and that you can always turn to, to, uh, to get that. So I think that's phenomenal, phenomenal advice there. So when we go back to independent living and the need in the community for people uh, with disabilities for independent living, where do you see some of the biggest needs that are, are currently impacting people with disabilities and being able to live independently? What, what are you coming across? I think the two, the two areas that I get the most calls about are barriers to access in employment and housing. From the employment side, the accommodation process is interactive. And so there's still a culture out there that employers, even though it's required, it's an interactive process, um, coming up with preferred accommodations seems to be challenging <laughs> because it's a way of excluding without saying, I won't, don't want someone who's disabled to be here. Wow. So can you unpack that? You know, I think you hit on something that are the preferred accommodations. What does that mean? I'll use because I'm doing service dogs right now. So an employer does not have to allow me to bring my service dog to work. It is an accommodation and we need to go through a process to make sure that that's the accommodation that will fit the business need. And so there may be other alternatives to a service dog in the workplace. They may decide they want me to work from home rather than bring my dog to work, which we often are seeing now. So that would be an example where the employer is driving the process because there are, is more than one answer to the question, how can I accommodate you in business setting? And so with accommodations, preferred accommodations, employment, 
seems to be a, a place that you're getting it. Where in housing specifically are you seeing uh, some of the biggest issues or threats to independent living? Um, for, for the housing, it comes down to number one, getting an apartment. If you've not been out on your own before and you don't have, you're coming from either living with family or a group home setting to the independent setting, you don't have the credit, you don't have the references that they're looking for mm -hmm. and they don't have to rent to you and they can do it in a way without violating the law that says there's no openings. Yeah, we've seen that a lot here as well. It's a kind of a conundrum. You almost need credit to get credit. So people that you know don't have past experience in housing or, or those references, or let alone maybe the income for first last deposit and having access. And even when there is a you know mandates for affordable housing within an apartment units, you know, certain number of units set aside, um, we we know of certain circumstances where there there seems to be a gray area where. Property managers can say, we did our due diligence, we advertised, you know, no one qualified, interested, or, et cetera, may have applied where, you know, in fact, uh, that wasn't the case. And uh, it wasn't fully available uh, and accessible and communicated effectively to people that there indeed was some units that were designated for affordable housing. And then they go for market value. Correct. Yeah. We're kind of touching along the edges here of the Americans with Disabilities Act and certainly the Fair Housing Act as we talk about housing. And I know you're steeped into this, uh, you know, being a certified coordinator with the ADA. But, it, you know, if you wanted to do kind of a brief overview of what the ADA is and why it's important for people with disabilities, please let us know what, what, what some of your thoughts are on it. That's a broad question. From our time perspective, the ADA was really meant to ensure that individuals have equal opportunity to participate in society. And that aligns with what the Center for Independent Living does. What they want to do on your end, from what I've seen, is they want to make sure people can live, work, play, worship in the community of their choice in the least restrictive alternative. And so mm -hmm. these rules are designed to break down the barriers. And in the beginning, it was the physical barriers that the building worked. But what about effective communication, whether it's that a website's accessible or that someone who is deaf has interpreter services? So the ADA is important because it sets a structure for the ground rules so that we have equal opportunity to participate. Thank you. That was a very broad question, broad overview. And, and with that, you know, you mentioned previously that it's been 30 years since the ADA was put into place. Where have you seen, you know, some of the, the successes with the ADA? Where, where do you believe like, hey, you know, this has really made, you know, an impact has changed the lives of people with disabilities who are born nowadays after it went into effect that they get to benefit from that people before 1990 did not get to benefit from? Um, two, two very visible ones. Um, you can go into any modern building and you can actually get into the building because from the parking lot from the parking space to park my van that is accessible to the no steps and a ramp, to using the uh, doors that open automatically to the mm. bathrooms that accommodate my wheelchair. We've done the most work in making buildings accessible. Um, I would say watch major news and you'll see an interpreter. So from an effective communication, we've seen some strides recognizing that you can't, if you can't communicate the message, 
it's a problem, especially in natural disasters, for example. Absolutely, yes. And I think we've done a good job in helping employers understand that people with disabilities can be valuable workers if given the opportunity. So these are these are some of the successes that you see in terms of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And now I'm going to ask the flip side. Where do you find that, you know, at least the spirit of the ADA is falling short in terms of operationalizing, you know, the ADA and what it's really meant to do? Where, where, where are some of the areas that perhaps it's falling short on? I'm even going to take that a little step back. I think where we fell short is we made so many different laws that are confusing, but complementary. So we have the Fair Housing Act and we have the Air Carrier Act and we have the ADA. And some of those offer similar protections, rights and responsibilities, and some of them don't. And so now we have states coming in and creating secondary levels to kind of fill in some space. So, It isn't a clear navigatable system. And then if you need to navigate and file a complaint, you know, do I file it with HUD? Do I file it with the DOJ? Well, if they don't take it, will will the Human Rights Commission take it or do I need to go through the Fair Housing Council? It gets cumbersome to actually operationalize it. So basically you're saying like the bureaucracy that underlies the complexities within it? Is that correct? Yes. It's hard to navigate without a guide. Is that bureaucracy almost like a necessary evil for all the checks and balances? Or is it, I mean, it's problematic, of course, but like there's all this emphasis on accountability and where's the money going and who has it and deliverables and responsibilities and reporting. And and then we want to make sure, you know, the outcomes are there and aligned. And in order to do that, it's almost like you are creating or you know, the system is creating all these layers for checks and balances. So it almost seems to me, again, one of those, you know, is it a necessary evil? How do we get out of it? How do we streamline it? How do we make it skinnier, but also accountable? Like, do you have any you know, thoughts on that uh, in terms of like, if we were going to really look under the hood and rewire the system, how do we do that? In the service drug world, I would have very specific, and I don't want to take all the time to do that, but in the service drug world, it's very, it's very easy because we're using terms multiple ways across laws. We have multiple agencies performing the same functions. (laughs) You know, in that example, I, I think to look at where the synergy is, is important. When we write the laws, we're not thinking about the outcome. So begin with end. the end in mind is a saying that I truly believe in. What do we want this outcome to be? We want people to have equal access. Well, if they don't, how does that get remedied. And I don't think that's how the laws were written is how do we remedy not getting equal access? And that's really where the focus should be, from my opinion. Gotcha. And that makes complete sense. Do you do you feel like the the convolutedness of these laws are also due perhaps to some of the litigious actions that have been taken and through that, you know, there becomes this patchwork of a, you know, kind of a quilt of these kind of changes and add-ons and all these other kind of things that aren't completely synergistic to it. Uh, because I've heard that, you know, could be, you know, part of the issues with like healthcare, you know, a lot of the, the, the laws and the managed care and all these other kind of things that surround that have a lot of usually been a results of litigation. Is that a force that, you know, kind of has, you know, making this more systemic and bureaucratic as well? I think litigation certainly impacts it. But when laws are written, the laws were written 
through influence. And so whoever has the loudest voice in the room or is in the last in the room usually affects the outcome of what we have to live with as a law. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the loudest, that, that there's cliches built around that. So do you find that um, there's a, you know, some threats out there right now to the Americans with Disabilities Act that people need to be aware of? Like, yes, you know, there's some really, you know, important legislation that are on the books that really help to protect, you know, people's rights. And yet, uh, even today, there's some potential threats of repealing certain things that are in there and et cetera. Are there things that we need to be aware about that could be you know, vulnerable to, to being changed, modified, eliminated? At this point, I would say that my expertise is not about changing the law. It's about getting consumers to be the pressure points for the law that's affecting them. Does that make sense? It does. So I would look to the Center for Independent Living clients to maybe do a survey and say, have I had barriers to access? Have I been been denied equal opportunity to participate in society? Are there commonalities that are experienced? And is there some way we can impact our community, whether it's local or at the state or national level, for me, one of the things that is on our agenda for the Service Dog Alliance of Florida is we're now five years in to a state law that enhances protections for service dog handlers, and yet the system does not have a way to collect data about if the law is working. It's not universally applied, the law, across municipalities, <laughs> and so... Uh-huh. And there's not agreement among the stakeholders, which are service dog providers, groups, about what should be done, because there's a fear if we touch the law, we're going to lose the protections we already have. So I'm glad you're opening this direction because you you have so much uh, to offer here in terms of uh, service animals and uh, you know all the things that are surrounding that. To zoom out just a little bit, I was wondering if you could explain, first of all, some of the differences in terms related to service animals, comfort, emotional support animals, and some of the distinctions that are uh, baked into that. Um, And it depends which law you're following. Uh Up until January, um, an emotional support animal was recognized by the Air Carrier Act. It is no longer. But housing recognizes support animal and service animal because they're both assistance animals. And then the ADA recognizes service animal so the, the main difference is a service animal is trained for a person to mitigate their disability. So it has a specific job the dog does to make my life better and make that disability not so prevalent. An assistance animal, also known as a comfort animal or an emotional support animal, their presence does not have to do work or task doesn't have to be trained, but it is performing a function and it is medically necessary just by being present. So say I'm a restaurant owner and someone comes in with a dog and I want to ask them about, you know, their service animal or their comfort. And I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's their own pet or what what, what they're doing. Um, What am I allowed to ask? Uh, You know, if I own a business, someone's coming into the business, has an animal, has a dog. What do I do in that situation? Number one, if it is not readily apparent what the dog does, so for example, if it's not readily apparent that the dog is pulling the wheelchair, 
So it's obviously doing a job. I am allowed to ask two questions. And the two questions are, is this a service dog required because of your disability? And what work or tasks is it trained to perform? So is this a service dog? And second question, what tasks has it been performed to do? And if they are able to answer those questions, and it may be apparent that it's an assistive assistive animal, and I'm in a public restaurant, a bank, kind of like a private public operation, you know, organization that is taking in people from the general public and gets illuminated that it's, it is a service animal. Am I, am I supposed to allow that person to have the service animal? Absolutely. What if it's an assistive animal? Service animals are the only animal guaranteed rights and protections to enter places of public accommodation, such as restaurants, doctor's offices, grocery stores, an emotional support animal, a comfort animal, an assistance animal are not a service animal is. Gotcha. And what do you find to be, you know, one of the biggest you know, challenges in ensuring that people aren't gaining the system and bringing assistive animals into public places that are out there? Because, you know, it does seem to be kind of an issue of, uh, you know, identifying whether or not they are or not. Like how, it just seems like it's kind of a difficult space. What are some remedies that you recommend, especially if people are responsible for discerning whether or not it's an assistive or a service animal? What, what are some of the things that we can help to remedy the situation to make sure that people, you know, aren't bringing in counterfeit animals or the rights of people who actually do have the right animal are, are protected? We are in a time where we are suffering greatly from service dog fatigue, as I call it. Our service dog alliance is focusing on our community, and our community means businesses and service dog handlers. And by focusing on the rights and responsibilities of both parties, we will address the issue of handlers who are misrepresenting that their dog is a service dog, handlers who are misrepresenting that they have a disability or handlers who have a disability and a service dog, but it's out of control. So that it is safe for teams, the dog and handler, service dog handler to go to businesses and for businesses to feel confident that who is supposed to be in their establishment, they're able to provide good customer service and not create hardships and barriers because they're thinking everybody is not doing the right thing. So there is no identification or, say, visible like jackets or distinguishing things that the dogs can wear that certify that it is a service animal, correct? That is correct. The, there's a difference between what we would like the law to be and what the law is. And the law clearly states the dog does not have to be identified. It's helpful, and we encourage handlers to think about why they may or not put something on, but certifications not required, vests not required, local leash laws are required to be followed because you can't, you have, must follow them. And there will be times when a dog may need to perform its tasks off leash because a person's disability prevents them from managing the leash and there are other ways they need to control it. But that is very rare. Mm -hmm. 
and, and like you said, even if it's a trained service animal, it still has to behave appropriately in public and not be, you know, causing necessarily mayhem, right? That is correct. And and we do a okay. lot of work doing businesses. We've got three uh, presentations coming up doing the rights and responsibilities of businesses because it comes down to it's not just is it legal, it's how do you want your customers to feel? Because if you're always believing the person coming in the door with their service animal isn't real, that's not great uh -huh. customer service. And how do you manage the needs of your customers? Because some people just don't like dogs in the environment. How do you have sure. a safe environment and an inclusive environment without making it an unwelcoming environment? And so we spent a lot of time not only dealing with the law, but the cultural attitudes. And it comes down to customer service. Absolutely. I'm glad you're saying that the, the, the primary focus to that. How, how much you know, training typically does go into a service animal and often how much at a cost too to doing that training? There is a wide range. Service Dog Alliance of Florida is a division of New Life Medical Service Dogs. And we came about because we didn't want to train dogs. We wanted to make access for handlers manageable. So whether you got a dog through New Life Medical or not, we're going to help you and our community access it. Programs like New Life Medical Service Dogs are not, some of them are nonprofit and don't charge. There are other programs in the community where in our region, uh, Guardian, Angels Medical Service Dogs, uh, Suncoast Service Dogs, nonprofits that don't charge nominal fee. And then there are professional dog trainers that will do it and charge. So there's a wide array of options for people who want to serve us dog. And some people self-train. How you get your training is not as important as does your dog display the necessary skill sets. Time is the biggest challenge because if you think about what goes into a service dog, there's obedience. So that's beginner, intermediate, and advanced obedience skills. There's public access, learning how to beyond just sit, stay in a public setting and responding emotionally and physically to all the things that could happen in public settings. And then there, there's the very personal need to learn tasks specific to my disability and my situation. And so depending on the age of the dog and the complexity of the skill level will determine where you need to go to get help in getting a service dog. Traditionally, it could take up to two years. I've seen some shorter than that a year, but again, it depends on the age of the dog and what the dog needs to learn. Um, I've seen waiting lists that were longer than like five years to get the dog um, because there's wow. demand. And I've seen anywhere from someone getting a dog for free trained to someone having to pay $50,000. Wow, quite a range there. It is. Um, what have you found to be some of the most benefiting things in terms of the experiences that you've seen people um, that you've trained to be handlers? You know, I'd, I'd imagine you, you've probably seen, you know, a lot of people coming in as beginners and then learn how to handle their service animals. Uh, along that progression of learning, what are some of the things that you found valuable to people in terms of learning how to handle their you know, service animal, but also meeting the needs of their disabilities? So I imagine there's a lot of, when you talk about interactions you know, that go along there, 
there's got to be a lot. We're talking trainer to handle the dog, the dog, and then the person. So this is almost like a three-way interaction here that's going on. And I'm sure you've seen some really interesting things that have happened along that process. Is there anything that you'd like to share along those lines? I, I think you've been peeking at our community education program because we call it the tri- <laughs> we call it the Trinity, and we have a sign of. <laughs> <laughs> I love the number three. Yeah. The, we have a sign of the human, the service dog, and then the team. I think what yeah. what makes our program, because everybody does it different. But what makes our program different is we focus first on the person with disability. And the reason for that is we are all volunteers and we are all volunteers who have a disability and have a service dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I love it. I love it. Yeah, I love that. It's peer, peer to peer. It's, it... And I have personally had service dogs from other service dog organizations and have kind of watched the lessons learned. And for me and for our group, what we saw was the focus was on the dog. And that's really not what it's about. We spend the first 15 weeks helping the person from the time we meet them till the time they finish intermediate obedience, understanding how their disability impacts their life Wow! before they're out in the community with the dog. Is that where you start to get into the who, who are you? Who am I? A little bit, because we talked about what's getting in the way, you know, for Mm -hmm. example, I'll give you an example, because we do book work classes with our students, and then we do dog classes with the dogs. And so the dogs for the first hour learn to sit patiently under under the table because their job, really the biggest job of service dog is waiting for me to do something. (laughs) So they're, they're getting trained learning how to sit and be quiet while we're learning about how we're going to implement in their lives. So, you know, one of the discussions is what verbal and nonverbal communications am I sending down the leash? Well, if I don't understand what my face and my body and um, my muscles do and how anxiety or fear or happiness translates down the leash, how am I going to understand what my dog is trying to tell me? Wow. That's deep. So do you teach like this self-awareness along with it? That seems to me it would take an incredible amount of like self-awareness, present moment awareness, body, you know, understanding what you're doing. A lot of those first weeks, we have what we call a service dog basics class and a teamwork class. And those two are to look at my life as an individual with a disability. And so when we talk about you're going to be going to the grocery store, well, what does it look like now? When I come up to a counter, where am I standing? How am I going to get my wallet? You know, when I go to my car and I have a service dog, who gets in first? We're making them think about the physicality, but also the emotional side of in a restaurant, where am I going to sit and why and how am I going to navigate so that we're preparing them and not just throwing them in. I love that you're bringing like this present moment awareness to their daily activities that people are doing and integrating that way to think about, well, once I do have a service animal, how is this going to you know work and align those kind of things? This is phenomenal that you really work on this and this identity and, and all these other kind of things. What else do you do with the, um, the people that you're training and handling and that kind of like personal level? The other thing we talk about is really how they're, they're, disability gets in the way of getting what they want. And so, for example, you will begin to see before the dog is ever ready to go to work, they're already changing some of the things that have not been productive in in terms of giving them the results they want. The the biggest one is the grumpy folks who immediately when they get frustrated, (laughs) yell. 
the dog doesn't respond to that. And so, you know, we, we talk about these things not in a way that is meant to be blameful, but to talk about how what we do impacts what we get. So are you basically training people to get out of their own way in some ways, trying to navigate, you know, very hard emotions or um, fixed mindsets? Our goal is to help them develop a relationship with their dog. This is not a command and control relationship. Uh This is a relationship like you'd have with a partner that someone has your back. And so you're developing that communication and mindset of what's allowed in that relationship and what's going to work to your benefit in that relationship and what secret hand signals are you going to send out in public to your dog so that they know what you want (laughs) wow you know this sounds like such a unique approach to me uh and again i don't know like a huge amount about you know service animal handling and training and all those other kind of things but i just really love how you go in on the personal the identity and uh what, what might be getting in your way and then the relationship aspect of person with a disability with their animal versus I am the controller, owner, dictator of this animal kind of an approach there. That's just very, it seems to be unique. Is that unique in the service animal handling, you know, kind of training world set you all apart? Yeah, that's what I said. That's what sets us apart because the program's like, that's awesome. you, you show up, here's your dog. You may spend a couple of days or a couple of weeks with us. This is what the dog does for you. What we have found is this approach allows us for someone who doesn't know the capacity of what a dog can do for them to grow. And usually what they say they wanted the dog to do coming in is changed and we've either added or deleted tasks by the end of the program. It doesn't, the picture doesn't look the same because we have a tendency to minimize our disabilities because we've just adapted so much. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, yeah, I got this. I don't need help with that. Or we sure. overstated what we can do because we don't want people to know we have that vulnerability. And so the time that we spend allows us to truly help them define what do I need and experiment with what is going to work. I love the experiment process as well. I feel like sometimes we learn more uh, sometimes when the experiment goes wrong uh, than when it always goes right as well. So you and I have also collaborated recently related to service animals, but in the area of disaster preparedness and emergency management, living in Florida and you know all the different things that are going on. It's been a very big topic. And you also, you know, illuminated doesn't have to be like a hurricane disaster for service animals to be something that people who do emergency management and even first responders to really be putting into their planning uh, to be aware of that, you know, and to be ready for it when it happens. Like it could be just a day to day thing where you do need uh, a paramedic or or whatnot to, to come to you. So where do you see the important issue areas or, you know, things that, you know, professionals in disaster management need to be prepared for when a disaster or an ordinary everyday health hazard, safety hazard occurs with a person who has a service animal? What should people be thinking about and preparing for if this is their job to ensure that people with service animals have you know, the, the access that they need to the, the, the health and safety services that are, are accompanying these issues? 
the, the nice thing is I, I'm beginning to see emergency planners account for not only service animals for pets, because what, after Hurricane Katrina, we saw the federal law that says you must have a plan for animals. What we need to work on is understanding separating handlers from their animals and having handlers prepared to not be separated from their animals and taking the things during a disaster that their plan includes planning for their dog. And so there needs to be a coming together. Um, and so having pet expos, because oftentimes during hurricane season, you'll see pet expos, you know, having information about how to plan for emergency shelter situations with your service animal will help prevent trouble at the door getting in. It, having those discussions because emergency management teams usually use schools. So there's stakeholders that you're using other resources to talk about how are we gonna handle this so that when someone shows up with a service dog, we all are on the same page. So how about disaster hits? Uh, you know, I have a service animal going to a shelter and I go to a general population shelter with my service animal. Are they uh, required to let me in and that be accessible or are they going to be you know, referring me out to a special needs shelter? A special needs shelter, again, each locality gets to talk about what that means, but they're really just typically designed as a medical intervention, that there's some higher need of care. If they're just trying to take and put someone with a service dog over there because they have a dog, again, that may not be in their best interest. At the time during a disaster, you may need to do what you got to do, but I certainly would be coming back and having that discussion because it's about equal access. I don't need anyone to do anything for my service dog. I want to be with my family. We showed up at the shelter. I brought all my provisions. Are you going to send me in my wheelchair away? A dog is a medical device. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with an emergency shelter saying, we have a, a special place if you'd like, because you have a service dog, because it's not as crowded. There's nothing to say you can't offer an accommodation but to generally divert because you've targeted and profiled people like this with this disability go here. Uh -huh. It's really a gray and unforgiving area. <laughs> it is, it is. And, and, you know, so yes, a general population shelter, you know, should accept somebody that has a service animal, no other medical needs. They're just, like you said, like someone in a wheelchair coming to a general population shelter, and it seems like we've seen past experiences where, you know, it's not put out there as an option. It's like, oh, we're going to go to the special needs shelter. Here's the address. Or even because there is, you know, an animal involved. Well, here's the shelter that allows pets and uh, can get sent in that kind of direction, too. So I think it I'm glad you're really illuminating for us that really should be up to the person where they go. You know, the choice that has allowed that. And that's the responsibility and role of people who run the shelters to, to know those differences. Right. And quite honestly, in the middle of a disaster, um, you know, we've had after the fact calls in the middle of a disaster. You can't really do much about it because the emergency shelters kind of be stuck in their position. Mm -hmm. But we can mm -hmm. work after the fact and we can work in advance to make sure we are implementing policies that give equal opportunity to participate. And I'm really glad that, you know, you mentioned that. So when 
during blue skies, as I guess it's called in the you know, emergency management world, where, where the disasters aren't hitting, this is the time to collaborate, get together, and synergize. And you, you, you participated on a, you know, a lunch and learn training that we did with the, the Tampa Bay Health and Medical Preparedness Coalition, a regional multi-county coalition of emergency management professionals, healthcare providers, and et cetera. And uh, you really gave a great piece on, you know, your expertise in service animal sh- sheltering and, you know, those kind of things. Um, and so I, I see all these different multi-agencies coming together and collaborating. And you're somebody that is just like, uh, you know, this, this ultra collaborator. You know, you've been a part of so many different fields and organizations and agencies. And, uh, you know, I recognize collaboration as one of the you know, most important tools in our toolbox uh, to make real change, impactful change out there in the world, but it's not always easy to collaborate. What have you seen in terms of barriers of collaborations between agencies, you know, trying to really get organizations to synergize? And what have you seen as some of the facilitators to get over those barriers towards collaborations? I think culture of the organization, which is not always the staff, sometimes it's the board, you know, where they see their position. Are they a combat? Are they a competitor because they're competing for funds? Because remember, we all want to stay in business. Um, or is it an advantage to collaborate? What am I getting out of it? And so being able to just be in places where you can have those conversations is really important. I would say it's rare for someone to pick up the phone like I did and say, is there something we can do to work together? Because I'm working on an yeah. issue and I can't do it alone. Um, that, uh-huh. There are networks and alliances. And then it becomes, how did we get the important issues that we think we could work on and solve together? Because there's one thing to talk about shared issues. It's another to say, we're going to work on it. And so I have spent um, most of my volunteer time being a facilitator. The two biggest projects I facilitated were um, getting a qualified healthcare center here in our county. And that discussion came from, well, I'm going to do this. And I'm like, wait a second, are you the best partner to do this? Who else is in the community? We need to have that conversation. The same thing with the food bank. They have wanted it for 10 years. Okay, why hasn't it happened? How do we get a core group of people on the same page? So It's not about, do I have the most money as an agency? Do I have the most staff? It's who is the conversation starter and who can pull together and synergize the common goal. And Center for Independent Living, I believe, is a catalyst to be a facilitator for those dialogues in the area of disability. Well, thank you for saying that. And that's one of the reasons I've asked you that question, because I do see you as this ultra collaborator. And, and this is something that's very important to me. And, you know, definitely have seen like what you're alluding to there, you know, with other agencies that, are, you know, kind of are turf war-ish, maybe for self-preservation reasons, like you said, like funding, you know, limited funding that, you know, we're all fine for. And it's more of a competitive versus cooperative uh, environment, but others are like you are just really cooperative, engaging. You know, time I find to be is one of the biggest barriers. So there's a lot of talk about you know breaking down the silos and and, and you know co- collaborating, but often time to me seems to be one of the biggest limiting factors and resources. You know, to getting together and synergizing because of you know just the amount of responsibilities that we all have. So you you seem to be incredibly productive, incredibly efficient in what you do. What are some of your you know tricks of the trade, and so to speak, to do the, your work efficiently to collaborate with time in mind in terms of one of the limited resources that we all are uh, up against? 
I think on, on projects, the skill set I bring is project management. So it's breaking it down into manageable pieces. You're going to come for 90 minutes. We're going to define the scope of what we're going to do. Done. Okay, we've all agreed on it. Let's send some stuff back and forth. The next step is let's put a plan together that we don't need to be in a meeting, that the work can be done outside and that you're taking these chunks and moving forward because people end up not wanting to do the time in alliances a lot of times because nothing ever gets done. It's just talking. And so having, having someone to guide the process to show productivity and outcome is how collaboration happens. So project management can be brought to bear. I love that. That can really help out with time and efficiency. And, you know, it really does resonate with me, as you're saying, bringing people together often translates to uh, more talk and less action. And, you know, it reminds me of a quote that uh, someone in disaster preparedness says quite often uh, that we were really good at admiring the problem. Like we can really break it down and, and get in the conceptual framework of the problem itself and get caught into that loop. Uh, that's necessary. You got to, you know, kind of know what you're up against, but then the execution, you know, the actual doing, what are some of the ways that we can go from dissecting the problem to actually taking action on the problem? What are, what are some of the things that can really help to bridge the gap between the knowing and the doing? Uh, and we, you're right. We spend a lot of time talking about it. Most times when groups come together, they know what the problems are. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? And so I always ask two questions. If you had a magic wand, what would the end look like? And that's where we start. And we, we, want the, we, want, we have all the money, all the people, all the time. And then, okay, in an ideal world, what's the, what would you settle for? And then somewhere in between that project, we actually find our solution. <laughs> and um, it's been very helpful. It may not be that we started out thinking who was going to you know, be the lead on the project or what the actual service was going to be. But we've solved the problem and we've done something and it fulfills a bunch of the checks that we needed to do to say this is complete. I love with your end in mind, you know, kind of starting it out. I, that does resonate with me as well. I like to think of the end in mind and then kind of reverse engineer it from there and try to work backwards. One of the things that I think uh, that you bring to the table that I find to be really, you know, in inspiring as well is your enthusiasm to make a difference in the lives of other people. Where do you get that from? I don't know, Tony. I, I, I can't answer that. Um, my journey mm -hmm. in the disability world stuck um, because stigma was a really big part of my life. I didn't know for 25 years that my mother had committed suicide. And I had been working in the mental health field for a while. Disability does not mean I'm not whole. Disability is something to be ashamed of. And it's not also a badge or a poster child. It's a part of who I am. I'm a white, middle-aged woman with a disability. I have purpose and I have a great ability to contribute. I may not be able to contribute, but others do, but I have something to contribute. And I believe that is true of everyone. We are not a label. We have a purpose. And our purpose is to be a contributing member of the community in which we live. And that could be family, friends, work, neighborhood, and the larger community. So what do you think are some of the most important values to then execute on that purpose that you have? 
for you? What are some of the most important valuable values that you know are, are very important for you to be able to do the great things that you're doing? I think it's to have insight. I need to know, A, what I'm willing to do, you know, where my lines and my boundaries are with people and organizations. I need to know what my strengths and limitations are. And when those opportunities come, what am I willing to do to push those forward? And when I hit the struggles or the threats, how do I respond? Because if I know the answers to those questions, or I have some sense of who I am, I then can, from an individual level, impact one person's life or many's life. That's great insight. I, I, I think that's a valuable thing. And I, I like how you always are tying it back to, you know, who are we, you know, and what is our role? What can we offer? What's our strengths? What's our limitations? It's very valuable wisdom there, Laura Lee. Thank you. So I want to acknowledge you for taking the initiative to reach out to us. And I know you do this for many other agencies and, and really ask. And, and it's such a servant leader mentality uh, that I get from you. And, and, and that to me is like one of the you know, highest forms of being in this area of trying to make you know, the world a better place through serving the needs of people who are often marginalized. And you have a lot of expertise and a lot of wisdom and you do it in a way that's super, you know, I find to be really humble in many ways. I think that's endearing, you know, often when people um, have all these kind of attributes of expertise and things to offer that they don't come at you with a holier than thou, I'm better than you uh, kind of mentality. And I think you really embrace that transactional, interpersonal, you know, uh, relationship that's so needed, you know, to work with people, to make things individualized. And I just want to acknowledge you for, for walking the talk and, you know, being in a place for where, from what I understand, you're retired. And yet, you know, with all the you know things that you could be doing with your life, you know, this is you living your purpose and your mission and just being true to who you are. And that authenticity really comes out. And when I engage with you and hear from what you're doing and interacting with and, you know, I find that to be really, really refreshing in an age where I think a lot of people aren't in touch with who they are. And, and sometimes I'm not either. And there you know, could be some inauthenticity that's in there. So I just want to acknowledge you uh, for, for those attributes and many more you know, that, that, that you have to offer. You're certainly making the world and community a better place for your presence in it and, and the purpose and the, the drive that you have. Thank you, Tony. And it is a real pleasure to work with you. And we'll work on you not calling me out on uh, on next time because it's really not about me the the story that we've talked about today was my journey but it could have been anyone's journey uh -huh. we have the ability to make a difference in every person we touch and it's up to us what those interactions are going to look like so we uh, have a few questions that we ask all uh, our guests, um, you know, for the episodes, and um, we just want to, you know, get your responses to it. I, I find it very interesting to compare and contrast uh, some of the responses that we get. Um, so if you don't mind fielding a few questions that we have uh, to close this out, okay. uh, I'm going to throw them out there to you. You know, we talked before about, you know, label, you know, you mentioned that, and we said a lot about, you know, the word disability. What are some of the other synonyms? And these 
don't necessarily be words that you're, you're, you're you know, advocating to use. They can be words that are, are not the most appropriate words to use. But what are some of the uh, synonyms that you heard along the way in your experience of disability? I'm only going to use one, and it's the word special. Okay. It's the word special. Okay. And it's been used in good and bad connotations. All your, uh-huh. you know, whether it's because someone has made an accommodation and a coworker is like, oh, you're special because they don't understand <laughs> the accommodation. Or because uh-huh. you know they make the joke about the short bus and you're special, um, uh-huh. so that, that those can words are good and bad. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what, do you have any words that you would suggest um, that would be more empowering to use at all? Well, see, I would. I, I'm of the mindset it depends. Because first, I'm going to say, why do I need a label? I want to put it in context. You know, do I need a label because I'm a member of a group? You know, because membership at a drop-in center. And I need to say I'm a member, a disabled person, part of a drop-in member. You know, do I need that label? Is it for eligibility? Is it for diagnosis? Why, mm-hmm. why do I need the, the label? And then the second is how the, the language, preferred language of the community I'm in. In some of the disability uh, communities, it's person first or identity. Mm-hmm. So do I want to be known as the person with the disability or do I want to be known as a blind person or a person with the, uh, that I, is blind, a diabetic or a person with diabetes, a member versus a consumer. So we need to understand the communities in which we operate. And then after that, even if I'm in that community, I may say, I'm not buying into that. I don't own that personally. Mm-hmm. So it really is, what is the person's preference? Not what's my preference. I love it. I love it. Again, you're going back to just making sure that we're not the experts. It's the people we work with and, and keeping them at the center of all this. So I really like it. How do, how do we really uh, reconcile? For me, there's tension between, you know, to label, to not label. In order to receive services, uh, you got to be diagnosed or, or labeled or, you know, need, in order to have resources thrown, there's got to be a need that's identified that often looks at a population that, you know, is definable. Um, but at the, at the same time, like you said, does it personally serve us? Um, in doing that, there seems to be some tension there. Is there is is it is it something that we should be trying to like hold two opposing thoughts uh, in our head uh, and and be able to reconcile that uh, at the same time? Or you know, I don't know. Help me out there, Lorley. I, I struggle this with myself, you know, and trying to grapple my head around that. Take it out of the disability arena. Think about veterans. It's not as contentious to say I'm a veteran. It describes. Mm-hmm a very specific action and it paints a picture. So when I go to a veterans group, oh yeah, you're a veteran. The, the context is why do I need the label? And for disabled, it has many reasons that you're asked the question to affiliate, um, but it has positive and negative. And so the, the agencies, agencies and organizations, yes, have to say, we are this. But then what they call the person should really be up to the context of the time. And the example I will give, when I first started my career, it was called mental retardation. If I were still working and I used that language, that is very offensive because the new term is developmentally disabled. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we can't rely on labels because A, they're not time honored and B, they're personal. They do create affinity groups. And so we have to do that with the intent of, I have this label because it identifies what we do, not who we are. 
I like that. So not everybody is as steeped in the world of disabilities as you are. Um, and if you were to you know, articulate you know, to people that are not, some of the values or strengths or assets of people with disabilities or just something you would want them to know about people with disabilities, what would that be? You know, we are really all the same as people without disabilities as all humans are adaptive. And what I mean by that is each of us use our strengths and limitations to handle the opportunities and adverse circumstances we encounter. Some of us just have different struggles and some of those struggles are disabilities. But the outcome of that, in my experience, is people with disabilities are resilient. They have learned to adapt and manage chronic or episode, episodic illnesses. And I find it enhances their creativity and problem solving skills. And when that happens, that translates to all kinds of relationships they have in the different communities they navigate. So I'm hearing that there you know, could be some really strength-based aspects of having a disability that could teach us adaptability, resilience. And uh, it, with that in mind, what have you personally gained from having a disability or working with people from disabilities that has helped to improve your quality of life? What are some of the strengths that you have because of disability? I think that first time that voc rehab professional told me, no, you can't do that. Um, I, I think pulling myself up from my bootstraps and saying, I'm the best judge of what I can do, not someone else. Um, I think tenaciousness, you know, the I tease the publisher of the paper calls me tenacious in a good way, but it's believing that we should be able to solve the problem. It may not be with the answer that we want, but we should be able to do something to impact the problem. And I think the last thing is to be kind to yourself because illness is hard and it always isn't a linear path. And to accept where you are in any given day, knowing the journey's not over. So how can we be more kind to ourselves? I think celebrating and gratitude. I think sometimes it's very easy, whether it's to the external world or our, or even for ourselves, to not recognize the things that we have to be grateful for. And I'm talking very small things. And I have a gratitude journal. And sometimes I write in it and sometimes I don't. Um, because it's easy to be bogged down with the what ifs and why nots of life mm -hmm. and to celebrate the small successes because it's those small successes that are stacked on top of one another that lead us to accomplish what we had hoped. I love that. Um, and, and, and for me personally, uh, you know, having, you know, gratitude, especially for this, you know, simple things can be really powerful. And um, like you said, celebrating those small wins or, or even growth is huge. I, I, I find that many people, including myself, don't acknowledge that. And, uh, and, and after a while, a lot of small things lead to big change. You know? and, and I find independence is no small thing, but it is often made up of those small things that, that could really matter. So, Laura, Lee, last question. Um, what does the independent life mean to you? I really think it's the convergence. The independent life means I don't think about my disability every day. It's a part of who I am, but it's not who I am. 
that I have the freedom to choose the path that I want to take in my life. And I have the ability with or without accommodations to have the life that I want. Well, it seems like you're uh, a living embodiment of what it means to live the independent life. Um, you know, it seems like you're certainly in the driver's seat of it and you're putting other people in the driver's seats of their own lives and, and living the independent life. So you're a great role model uh, for me and doing that good work and, uh, and, and certainly for learning to how to collaborate better with other agencies to really synergize and, and really think about the greater good of others and to really bring it back to, uh, you know, starting with the end in mind. What is it we want out there for ourselves and really learning who we are along the way. So, uh, man, I, I really, uh, you know, appreciate you taking time, Laura Lee, to share your insights, your wisdom, your experiences with us. I, I look forward to having you back. I look forward, uh, more importantly, even to, to doing uh, work together and collaborating to serve better, uh, you know, those that are uh, out there who may need us and, and making the community and world a, a better place. And, you know, before we sign off, I was wondering if, uh, you know, you might be able to uh, leave us a, with a quote to chew on. My favorite quote is from an unknown poet, Henrik Ibsen. A community is like a ship. Sometimes you have to take the helm. So it's not always us that are the driver and it's time to pass the torch to many to follow. I love that. You know, and, and I feel like nowadays with COVID, especially that, you know, as a society, we're, we're all in a lifeboat, it seems like. I, I, I feel very grateful for the times where um, I feel like I have a paddle uh, that I can help contribute to steering the boat in, in the right direction. And, and I recognize not everybody has that paddle, but when offered the opportunity to take that paddle, to take that helm, to help steer that boat, that community, uh, is a very... Uh, a place that I'm very grateful for and I'm also also humbled by because that's a that's a very special opportunity to really to really not just help ourselves but the greater good and, and Laura Lee thank you for being the embodiment of that and thank you for sharing your quote your time your wisdom Tony thanks to you and the Independent Living Center you guys do awesome work all right Laura Lee well thank you again and to all those listening to the next time onward and upward take care Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.